All right. So last week, as Stephen taught, um, we saw how Christ's death and resurrection was a, a major turning point. You know, we're reminded of that, frankly. We knew this, but we're reminded it was a ma major turning point. Um, but it's a major turning point in the weekly observance of the Sabbath. Before, as we understand it and know it, the weekly Sabbath was under the tutelage of the Mosaic Covenant. But after Christ rose from the dead, the weekly Sabbath, you could say, took on a, a deeper glow uh, when you look at it. Uh, keeping the Sabbath in the New Covenant is and continues to be a major step in redemptive history. And it's a step closer to what our final rest will be like with the Lord in glory. So what we're gonna talk about this morning, a few sections, we're gonna talk about the Gospels and the Sabbath. Uh, we're gonna talk about, um, so we're in the New Testament, and we're gonna talk about, so the Acts, the Epistles, the Letters, um, Revelation, in, in its indications to the weekly observance of the Sabbath. And then just the law and the Sabbath for, for the Christian. And then next week, next week we close out this, not next week, next Sunday. We, yeah, that's next week. <laughs> Mercy. Um, a nice, I, I, I had a good night's rest. Um, next week we close out the study um, going on the practice you know, the Christian practice of the Sabbath. So we'll close it out next week. All right, the Gospels and the Sabbath. At the end of the Gospels, a significant change is made to the weekly observance and that there is a change in the day of observance. It's not just once, but multiple times I've been asked about the validity of keeping a a Sabbath on a Sunday versus a Saturday. Well, we're going to talk about that this morning. The resurrection of Jesus Christ on the first day of the week is cause for the change from a Saturday observance to a Sunday observance. All right. The resurrection of Christ marks this change. Now, evidence of Jesus' resurrection occurring on a Sunday, that did happen on a Sunday, we believe is very clear in scripture. In John chapter 20, Mary Magdalene, she visits the tomb and it's cited to be on a Sunday. You can see what's on the screen there in verse one. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb on the first day of the week, it says. Chapter 20 reveals Mary recover, discovering the resurrected Lord. You know how she, she clings to him and he says, don't cling yet to me. I haven't gone yet to be with the Father. We are shown that Jesus was raised from the dead on the first day of the week. Mary Magdalene was chosen by God to be a witness unto this fact. And Maybe you've heard this before, but it's also um, an amazing thing, especially in, in Jewish writing, you know, how the Lord chose a woman for this um, honor. Later that day, 
Also recorded in John chapter 20, there is a second appearance of the risen Lord being witnessed. He, he appears to 10 of his disciples. And we see this in verse 19 of chapter 20. It says, on the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. This peace that Jesus spoke of, it is a fruit of his finished work of redemption, of reconciling poor sinners like you and me to God. A peace that is known only by faith in him. It is a gospel. These disciples are commissioned by the Lord to take to the world. Now his presence, Christ's presence with his people, in this example here, even among his disciples, in the proclamation of the gospel to sinners, yes, these men were sinners, uh, but this proclamation to build up the people of God, these are marks, if you will. These are marks of this newly sanctified first day of the week. And what's more even is that we have script scriptural proof that it wasn't just that single particular first day of the week that is significant that was made special for example we see that thomas's skepticism disciple thomas his skepticism is met with the lord's mercy on the following sunday now i find this very interesting uh, this is in john 20 verse 26 eight days later his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, again, he said, peace be with you. The author in the study that we're going through, Guy, Prentice, Guy Waters Prentice, he notes that the eight days pointed out here in this verse. The eight days is really one week. And it's understood by what's called inclusive reckoning. Now, understand, the Jews often did this in their own timekeeping, this idea of inclusive reckoning. Inclusive reckoning of time simply says that you would consider a fraction of a day as a whole day. In fact, it is by Jewish inclusive reckoning how we understand Jesus to have been in the tomb three days, crucified on a Friday and rising to life on that Sunday. That takes that Jewish concept of inclusive reckoning. So by this inclusive reckoning, it is exactly one week later from Jesus' first appearance with his disciples on a Sunday to appear to them once again, including to Doubting Thomas. What a bummer of a nickname. Just two more, really, to point out of Sunday resurrection appearances that we find. And there, we'll go to the Gospel of Luke to do this. In verse 1 of, of Luke chapter 24, it says, But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared. Now, this is, of course, parallel to what we read in John chapter 20. Um, in verse 13 of that same chapter in Luke, it says, 
That very day, that very day on uh, the first day of the week, the very day of that uh, first appearance by Mary Magdalene and others, that very day two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. Now, of course, this account is of Christ. You know, initially, Christ is unrecognizable, if you remember this, the story. He's un initially unrecognizable to the two disciples here on this road to Emmaus. And as the narrative explains, it wasn't not until finally when supper time came around, it was in the breaking of the bread when Jesus revealed himself to them, and then, poof, he vanishes. Luke's second account of Christ's resurrection appearance to his disciples occurs immediately after this meal with these two men on the road to Emmaus. Uh, and this is in verses 36 through 43 in, in Luke chapter 24. And that particular account is likely parallel to the resurrection of appearance of Christ to the ten disciples that we read in John chapter 20. So obviously these are synoptic, well not synoptic gospels with John, but they are, there are parallels even in the Gospel of John. But what does Jesus say when he appears to these disciples? He says, peace be with you. He gives them his word. He ministers to them with his word. Peace be with you. Considering these multiple appearances of the risen Lord, we consistently see him appearing on a Sunday. The gospel writers, Luke and John, they take special care to document four distinct appearances on a Sunday. Now, this is not to suggest that Christ did not appear to his, to his disciples on any other day. After all, there are undated appearances of the resurrected Lord in Luke and in John and in Matthew. But the only dated resurrection appearances happen to fall on the first day of the week. The only ones that are dated. Now it seems to be a bit evident here that neither Luke nor John considers this particular day to be merely incidental uh, to the meaning and significance of what they're trying, they're relating to us. You know, on, on top of all this, there are details that are common to these sun, Sunday appearances, the author points out. Now, four of five of all the appearances that um, are listed in those Gospels, with there being multiple disciples gathered together, um, in those appearances, Jesus gives proof that he's been raised with a tangible body. Uh, and again, he communes with them by his word, you know, saying, giving them peace. On that walk to Emmaus, he talks about uh, his redemptive ministry and, and suffering and glory in the context of the entire testimony of the Old Testament, how it talk, those passages talk about him. He even tells his disciples to go and proclaim this good news, the gospel, to others. The author of the book we're going through again, Guy Waters, uh, he says that 
When these details are read against the, the backdrop of the whole New Testament, there is an unmistakable pattern that begins to emerge. And it all really is reflecting the public worship of God. Now, why are we talking about this this morning, this subject? Well, we're talking about the Sabbath, but we're talking about and what's entailed in that is the command to come and gather and worship publicly, corporately. We know there are, are, are many out there that argue the day, and there's uh, many that would even argue that there is no longer a commandment to keep the Sabbath. And we're going over these details. There is a clear, unmistakable pattern that we should be gathering and, and worshiping corporately. This weekly public worship is an abiding feature of the life of God's new covenant people. And again, keeping that Sabbath command. But what, what has changed, according to the New Testament writers, is the day when believers assemble to worship God. From creation until the resurrection of Christ, God called people to worship him on the seventh day. From the resurrection until the return of Christ, God calls people to worship him on the first day of the week. All right, so Guy Waters, our author here, he raises a question here, yes, why? Why is it that at the resurrection, God shifts the day when people are to rest from the labors of their earthly callings and to gather in his worship? Well, the resurrection has momentous implications for human history, clearly. What would be our faith and our religion if we did not have a resurrected Lord to begin with? Be meaningless, hopeless. Now, Paul tells us that the saving work of Christ brings history to its intended climax and consummation. And for this reason, he links Jesus' resurrection with the eschatological age to come, that end time, the time with the Lord and his return to come. He links those things. The New Testament shows us really this epic significance of the resurrection of Christ, also relating to the resurrection, um, relating it to creation. Paul tells the Colossians that Christ is both the firstborn of all creation and the firstborn from the dead. And this is a, a parallel expression showing Paul's understanding of the resurrection as, as G.K. Beale put it, as a new cosmic beginning. It is a glorious starting point. When he wrote to the Corinthians, Paul links Christ's resurrection with the new creation in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. You know, the resurrection of Christ from the dead is, again, a uniquely defining moment in, in human history. It is the, what you would call the dawn of the last days, of the age to come. And, and, and we should see how it stands parallel to the creation of the world. But 
He asked the question, what does this mean in regard to the weekly Sabbath? Well, the Sabbath is a creation ordinance. And we've talked about that already. It is a creation ordinance, and it, therefore it has lasting purpose until the world is no longer. And setting the Sabbath on the seventh day, what did God do? He showed humanity his purpose for all human beings, that they should be worshipers of the one who created all things. The resurrection of Christ is equally, again, the dawn of a new creation in human history. It's very unique. It's the once-for-all work of Christ to save elect sinners from among all the nations. And so the, the Sabbath comes to commemorate God's work of new creation and redemption in his resurrection on the first day of the week. So what we're doing is we're looking back on the first day of the week, we're looking back in grateful remembrance on the fact that Christ was raised for our justification. And if we look back upon Christ's resurrection as, as the author in this book calls it, you know, this inbreaking of new creation into human history, it's something we're looking back on and seeing this victory, but it's something we also we look forward to on this day. We're also looking forward. And that's where it is eschatological in nature. This, this Sabbath rest that we observe weekly. So the consummation of God's purposes for humanity and the world has found its beginnings in the death and resurrection of Christ. And it is on Sunday when people are to look back to what God has done and to look forward to what he will most certainly do in Christ. I want to share this, this little quote from Spurgeon here um, regarding the Sabbath. It says, The change which our Lord has made in the Sabbath is indicative of the change which he has made in our life. The law says, work six days and then observe the seventh as the Sabbath. But under the gospel, the arrangement is rest on the first day before you have done a stroke of work. Just as the week begins, take your rest. And after that, and the strength derived from it, and from the grateful motives which arise out of that one blessed day of rest, give to the Lord the six days of the week. So even in our and the concept of being the first day of the week, this idea of looking forward is still evident in our, in our calendars. We know we need to be washed in the word regularly, reminded of the promises. It is a Sabbath rest. All right, let's move out of the Gospels. Let's go to... Uh, the main body of New Testament in terms of most of it uh, with the letters and Acts and Revelation. And there we will find in here strong indicators that the apostolic church carried forward Christ's example in gathering to worship on the first day of the week. Again, solidifying that fact. In Acts chapter 20, toward the end of Paul's last documented missionary journey in Acts, Paul gathers with the church in Troas. And Luke, who wrote Acts, was, was accompanying him, was with him on that. 
um, on that journey. And um, in that chapter, Paul's talking and he says, we were gathered together to break bread. And that, friends, is a reference to the Lord's Supper. On a Sunday, gathered together to break bread, to you know, take the Lord's Supper. And further, before they observed that supper, Paul, he, he, he preached for a long time. It says he prolonged his speech until midnight, and that's where we also have that young man that falls out of the window, fell asleep. Um, he preached the word of God before he administrated the supper to the church. Um, overall, both word and sacrament characterize the public worship of the churches of Jesus Christ. This is not the only place and instance where we see the breaking of bread being, becoming a regular part of the weekly observance of the Sabbath. Uh, there is one further detail about this particular gathering um, that helps us to understand that pattern is again that Luke points out in Acts 20 verse 7 that this is on the first day of the week. So again, now we're into the letters and we're into the, um, the early church history, if you will, in the Acts. Gathering on the Lord's Day, on the first day of the week. In the letters, there are two passages in the epistles uh, that in different ways point to the first day of the week as the day when the, the local churches would gather and worship by divine command. And first, we see this in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verses 1 through 4. It reads, Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable that I should go also, they will accompany me. This is instruction Paul has given to at least two churches now, the Church of Galatia and the Church in Corinth. And why does he tell them to do this on the first day of every week? Because he knows, Paul knows, that these churches, like others, are already gathering together on Sundays. Additionally, Paul makes it clear that taking up a collection for the care of the saints is to be part of the public worship of God on Sundays. Another passage to look at regarding the regular worship of the church is found in Hebrews. Hebrews is a great place to go for these um, li church life uh, commands and instruction. In Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 through 25, it says, And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. The church is commanded to not to neglect to meet together for worship. No single particular church is called out here. It is instruction for all the churches of Christ to regularly assemble. 
And there is somewhat of a sense of urgency in the command is because there were some in the habit of skipping church, not gathering together. You know, a particular day is not necessarily explicitly called out here. It isn't. But there is certainly inferred to be a day of habitual gathering. They didn't need to write a day if everyone knew what that day was. Just like when we write things that are obvious. It is a day when believers stir up one another to love and good works. That is what we're to be doing, encouraging one another. And by the way, the, the day that is drawing near, that Hebrews writes, that's the day of the Lord returning in glory in the clouds. So, now given all of this, the church should be motivated to engage in regular gathered worship of God. We are to keep that fourth commandment. Even in the New Testament, even in the, the church age. Very appropriately, the writer of Hebrews earlier termed this hope of the Christian a Sabbath rest that remains for the people of God, a Sabbath rest. And calling this rest a Sabbath, a Sabbath rest that indicates that the creation ordinance of the weekly Sabbath continues under the new covenant. I don't know about you, but again, I have been asked these questions uh, about there being, let alone a particular day we should be worshiping on, but again, the validity of keeping the fourth commandment. Now let's go to the final book of the New Testament, to Revelation, and it helps us understand um, the foundation and effects of such encouragement a bit more fully. Well, as the apostle John is exiled on the island of Patmos, he hears certainly an authoritative voice. He hears a voice on that particular day. Um, chapter 1, verse 10, it says, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet. The phrase, the Lord's day, it doesn't appear elsewhere in Scripture, even though we know Christians would soon pick that phrase up to designate Sunday as the weekly day of Christian worship. In this verse, in Revelation 1, verse 10, John is saying that Jesus has set this day apart from the other six days of the week. It is the Lord's day. It belongs to the Lord, simply meaning that. Um, so John's audience were suffering Christians. They were suffering, and indeed, they were experiencing acute suffering. And they needed a vision of the reigning, glorious, risen Lord who is sovereign over his church, who is sovereign over the whole wide world. They needed that encouragement. And so what John sees is really is a vision of Christ in power and glory. And so when the Lord speaks to John, he identifies himself as one who has been raised gloriously from the dead. 
will never die again. And he has absolute authority over death as the one who conquered death in his resurrection. And, and on this day that is the Lord's, the church remembers that Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead. He's conquered death, the grave. He's sovereign over all things. We, we do this as we take the, the sacrament, the Lord's Supper, a memorial, remembrance of these things. In verse 17 in Revelation chapter 1, John writes, When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead, but he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last. Could imagine that was probably a very frightful sight. <laughs> On this Lord's Day, the risen Christ gives his servant John a message for the church to fear not. Fear not. I am the first and the last. Every time the church gathered to worship on the Lord's Day, then they were reminded, and we are reminded, but they were reminded they have no reason, these suffering Christians, they have no reason to fear the people and the authorities who stand opposed to Christ and his church. He is the first and the last. One commentator quoted, said, it is through the corporate worship of the church that Christ's lordship is actually realized in the life of the church. In other words, the church's willing and faithful obedience to this command of keeping the Lord's day, this command of Jesus Christ, keeping it is an, an expression of his absolute lordship, of acknowledging this truth. And to, to not gather on it, to be, as some were guilty of habitually not gathering, is to dishonor this reality of Christ's absolute lordship. As the word of Christ is proclaimed in the churches on the Lord's day, believers are equipped to confess Christ is Lord. This is our equipping time, right? In every area of our life. The Lord's day visibly demonstrates Christ's lordship when his people gather to worship him. And as we live in accordance with the word of Christ in our families, in our work, our school, wherever, throughout our communities. These give further expression of the lordship of Christ to a world that is watching us. All right, let's go to the last section here, the law of Sabbath and Christian. Um, from the creation to the resurrection of Christ, the Sabbath fell on the seventh day of the week. All right, we talked about that. Uh, this day commemorated the completion of God's work of creation in six days. And then from the resurrection of Christ until his return, the Sabbath now falls on the first day of the week. This day commemorates the new creation that has dawned because of Jesus' resurrection from the dead. Now, there is no explicit command in the New Testament that spells out this change of the day. Now, we learn of this change rather in implicit ways. We acknowledge that. The Gospels show us not only that Christ was raised from the dead on the first day of the week, but also that he met with his disciples 
on the first day of the week, ministering to them with his word of peace. Uh, the events that transpire during those, those meetings of his anticipates what the New Testament tells us will happen when believers gather together in observance, weekly observance, worshiping God, you know, the ministry of the word, the, the breaking of the bread, i.e. the Lord's Supper, singing psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, you know, prayer, collection for the needs of the saints, these aspects of worship. We also acknowledge that the absence of that explicit command in the New Testament letters that would be something like, you shall keep the first day of the week as the Sabbath under the New Covenant, the absence of, the absence of such an explicit statement has troubled some Christians. It's enough for them to conclude that the New Testament's seemingly apparent silence points to an abrogation of the Sabbath under the New Covenant. We know that teaching exists today in New Covenant theology. Even more hardcore dispensationalism, <coughs> which is dying out. But truly, the New Testament is not silent on the matter. There is an additional line of teaching in the, New, in the New Testament that helps to confirm this conclusion. As the New Testament reflects on the implications of the finished work of Christ, it does so in relation to the Mosaic Law. So, there are at least two passages here. The Apostle Paul shows us that the Ten Commandments summarize the duty of the Christian under the New Covenant. We've heard that before. The summary of the law. The Ten Commandments. First, in Romans 13, Paul helps us to understand the relationship between love and the law of God when he writes in verses 8 through 10, Owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. Now here, the apostle shows us that love actually fulfills the law. Now we gotta understand what he means by that. But love actually fulfills the law. In keeping the commandments, believers love their neighbor and love God. Paul quotes several of the Ten Commandments in the form as they appear uh, in Deuteronomy 5, for example, in the Decalogue, Exodus 20. He understands this list. He understands this list to be representative and not exhaustive. He does add the words, and any other commandment. All of the Ten Commandments, including the keeping of the weekly Sabbath, remains for God's people under the New Covenant. Another passage I told you by Paul, the apostle gives instructions for the children of the church. Ephesians 6, verses 1 through 3. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise. 
that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Now again, Paul gives to them in the same form that you read in the Decalogue. And what's noteworthy about Paul's citation of this promise is that while its original recipients were Israelites who had been redeemed from Egypt, the apostle applies it to the children of a largely Gentile congregation in Western Asia Minor. In other words, the Ephesian children, they're not Jewish for the most part. They're not inhabitants of Canaan. Very tellingly here, Paul does not recite the remainder of Deuteronomy 5, verse 16, that the land the Lord your God has given you. Paul, he understands the commandment and its promise to really have a wider and more extensive application for us than it does for the old covenant Israel. It is valid not merely for the Jew who worships the Father in Jerusalem, but for all those true worshipers everywhere who worship him in spirit and truth. You know, the way the way Paul interprets and applies this particular commandment from the Decalogue, it's a window into how he interprets and applies each of the Ten Commandments. You know, overall, his application reflects that huge, momentous change that we see from the, the, the giving of the law at Sinai to the death of our Lord on Calvary. That the death and resurrection of Christ has meant that the law has come to fulfillment. It's undergone transformation. You know, anything specific to the Israelites under the old covenant, you know, for example, those promises relating to the land of Canaan, those promises have been affected, for sure. The law undergoes a change necessary to reflect the fact that God's people in the age of fulfillment is not just for the Jews, it's also for the Gentiles. It's one people. Now, this transformation that's happened, it guides us in understanding how Paul approaches the Sabbath commandment. That it binds believers under the new covenant insofar as this commandment reflects transformation in the light of the finished work of Christ. The, the writers in the New Testament, including Paul, that transformation deals, entails a, a change of the day from Saturday to Sunday. The holy day of resting now falls on that first day of the week. And the commandment has not undergone any substantial change, just as the commandment to honor one's father and mother hasn't undergone any substantial change. The change is rather a circumstantial one. And what really is reflected here is the triumph of, of Christ. All right, let's close out here. Let me just wrap it up. Overall, overall the New Testament shows us that the resurrection of Christ affected a profound transformation of the Sabbath. 
but it didn't stop it. We now observe it on the first day of the week, and it commemorates the end-breaking of that new creation, Christ's resurrection. Our own confession, the Second Lone Baptist Confession, our own confession in chapter 22, paragraph 7, it testifies to this change. In, this, in the day. And the weekly Sabbath continues to point to creation, or does, that new creation, to redemption, consummation, because we are enjoying a, a Sabbath rest each week, pointing to that eschatological rest we will have. And it's all in the light of the finished work of Christ. I think what we've accomplished this morning is pretty good in terms of justifying the movement of the day and the keeping of the Sabbath in the New Covenant. 